this is kind of an appendix, but you mentioned something last session. I just wanted to kind of, this is a really wonderful time. Thank you for letting us sit here and talk about these things. You were mentioning that you were a dispensationalist. and um, Had been. Yeah, had been. And I, I thought a lot about that. And so let me just real quickly give us something to talk about for the next couple of minutes. I think the way you look at a theological system is to check their presuppositions first because that's really where you can critique them. And I think dispensationalism has two presuppositions that I don't think are biblical. One is that all prophecy has to be literally fulfilled to Israel and that the church and Israel are totally separate. I think both of those, in my understanding of both Old and New Testament, are not true. It, it misunderstands the nature of prophecy and it misunderstands the, for sure the Pauline deal of the unity of Jews and Gentiles. But I, I guess what has uh, bothered me more than anything is that it, it turns the New Testament into a Jewish book and the millennium into a Jewish kingdom. And the Christians are pulled out just to have the prophecies fulfilled to the nation. And of course, I, I know that no, neither Jesus nor any apostle ever reaffirmed a national promise to Israel, never. So this deal comes, I'm, I'm always confronted with the secret rapture. And of course, the rapture is mentioned, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But if you'll read that, there's nothing in there that everybody tries to connect with millennium. There's nothing about the millennium there. And when you look at it, it it's obviously we're caught into the air, and the question will come, why? Well, I think the air, Satan is called the prince and the power of the air. The ancient church believed the air above the earth was unclean where demons live. So I think we're going to meet the Lord in the middle of Satan's kingdom to show its overthrow and to come right down. But the real kicker is the secret rapture. See, I see no place in Jesus or Paul for that. The only place you get it is Matthew 24 where Jesus says there'll be two in the bed, two in the field. But if you notice, it says, as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, if that's right, the analogy is right. The one taken in Noah's day was not saved, but destroyed. So we're turning the analogy on its head to back up the separation of the people of God into two groups. And, and I think it's, it's, it's really unfortunate. Now, my theology has reacted to classical dispensationalism really negatively. But the professors at Dallas Seminary have recently, several, maybe a decade now, written a book called Progressive Dispensationalism that I think is so much more healthy and right, answers some of these shocking, um, I think, biblical misunderstandings. So I just, you know, you mentioned that in the past you had been that, so I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk for a minute. Well, it was, it was interesting, interesting growing up because there's the four, there the four dispensation, dispensationalists, the seven, the nine, the eleven. I mean, yeah. <laughs> which one are you? And you can debate those sorts of things. It's like Calvinism, how many points? What time periods are there? What dispensations are there? Yeah. Um, and where do you fit? I want to go back to that Matthew 24 passage yeah. because that is the passage that a lot of people allude to when they're talking about this rapture that's going to take place and a pilot will be flying and he's gone and the right. plane crashes and very, uh, you know, this present starters left yeah. behind. Those sorts of things kind of play on that, in which those are not meant as theological <laughs> treatises by any means. Uh, they were for entertainment purposes, but we've taken them to be codified right with Scripture almost. Mm -hmm. But if you read that Matthew 24 text, that's the immediately after the great tribulation that there'll be none before or after like it. So yeah. at the best case scenario, that's a post-tribulational rapture, at the best case scenario, which nobody, everybody who believes in the rapture based on that text rejects that ideology. So they're just, they're taking that, those, te those verses completely out of context. 
uh, and, and yeah. because I, it, it seems to be that the Christians will live through the tribulation. Um, I've talked, if the, you know, depending on what that even means to some people, I've talked to Christians through the years who want to pull this verse or that verse to say we're going to miss the tribulation, and usually it boils down to, well, I don't think God is going to make His people go through that. Yeah, that's just not true. Is so it? Basically, I don't want to do that. The whole world is <laughs> suffering today, the yeah. church and the world, and we're not. But so. every Christian has for generations, not yeah. every, but many Christian groups throughout the history world, and even today throughout our world, are going through those very issues. Right. Being burned as lampposts under Nero, and, and what's happened through the years in, in Africa and Asia and different places, um, and, and even in our continents over here in different ways. There's everything from just embarrassment, mild embarrassment for being a person of faith, to uh, to being executed in, in, in brutal ways uh, happening today. So it's just not fair to say, well, I don't want to have to go through that, so it must not be true. Yeah, I think uh, people say, well, I want to be alive when the Jesus comes back. Well, I don't think you know your New Testament because I think there's be a lot of dead Christians. No, I think the church will go through that. I'm a post-trib. I believe the church will face that as it always has. One thing else around Matthew 24, you know, people always say, well, there's more, there's more uh, volcanoes today and earthquakes. It's got to mean it's close. It, those are all precursor signs of every age, wars, rumors of war. Right. That's happened in every age. It bothers me so badly that every sermon I've ever read says the second coming is close from the early church till now. And the trick is when we say that over and over, we lose all credibility, right? So I think the New Testament second coming text speak to the last generation but they're relevant to every generation. Sure. But what we do is take the newspaper in one hand, the Bible in the other, and suddenly Chernobyl is a mark, it's gonna happen, or the, the computer called the beast for the MasterCard is the, is the deal. Some satellite called Wormwood. Or Henry Kissinger in, in, in Hebrews fell backwards. Holy <laughs> moly, what are we trying? Right. I think there's such a hunger for, for to know the future that we forget that we're to walk by faith day by day. We're not, the Bible doesn't really give us a detailed roadmap. It gives us pointer signs. And the pointer sign is, trust me no matter what. On that subject, I had a lady that was in a church where I served in Alabama who was very into end time things and wanted me to come talk to her. It was a widow and I would go and have, have lunch with her and we would talk about biblical things. I'm fine with that. And we'd debate these things. She'd heard me say that I didn't believe in the pre-trib, pre-millennial rapture anymore. Uh, and that bothered her. I, she wasn't there to hear me say it. She had it third hand. She wanted to debate these things with me, and we went into a lot of details about that. But the funny thing is she didn't go to church. Oh, my. She, she wasn't because she was oh too feeble. And she thought, Jesus is just coming back really soon. I think everybody needs to get ready. I said, well, if you don't mind me asking, why aren't you in church? Well, I'm not that worried. I don't need it. I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> like, she was worried about Jesus. Her children didn't know the Lord. And she, she got so captivated with this one part of, of the Bible yeah. that she didn't have a working faith. She didn't have a, what, other than just detailed information about what she thought the same coming was going to be. And, and I just think there's better things I can waste oh, yeah. my time on. And, you know, I was out in Lubbock at, at where I pastored for 10 years and a guy in Post took out a whole newspaper ad and he had when the second coming is gonna happen and who and what and when. And I told Peggy, my wife, I said, Shazam. Jesus doesn't know, but this guy in post does, yes. right? Yes. Only the Father knows, right? right? The Son doesn't know. So we need to take the strengths and live in light that one day we're going to stand before God and we don't want to be somewhere and live in some way to embarrass us, right? Right. The second coming is an impetus to holiness. And we've turned it into, look at my chart, it's better than your chart.
Right. So I've got again, to figure it out smart. Back to living, right? It, it matters how we live, not that we are absolutely perfect on the prediction. Well, this is what I told her. I said, her name was Peggy. I said, Peggy, I said, here's the reality. I don't know if Jesus is going to come back in our lifetimes or not. But I know this without a doubt. All of us at the end of our lifetime are going to see the second coming of Christ for us personally. We need to be active and ready. We, yes, so in all of our lifetimes, and everybody that's watching, everybody that's participating, all Christians will, at the end of their life, whether it's Jesus coming in from the sky or us dying to go be with him, will have to be in the exact same boat either way. Let's live a life worthy of that's that right. calling. Not be ashamed. Let me chase something and you tell me how off base well, I am Well, I want to do on one this. thing first. Sure, sure. I brought this book and it's burning in my hand. Okay. Can I tell you the best book I've read on prophecy and apocalyptic in the last five years? This is D. Brent Sandy, teaches New Testament at, at Wheaton. And what he's done is take prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled, like Joel 2. In Peter Acts. says on Acts 2 it's fulfilled. Right. Nothing in Joel 2 happened in Acts 2, which shows they knew this was symbolic and Westerners don't have a clue. And this is highly indexed. If you're interested in prophecy, Plowshares and Pruning Hook, strange name, D. Brent Sandy. Brent Sandy, not, not Bob Utley, right? You're not selling your book. That's not me, no, and uh, no, but he has sure stirred me up, I tell you. I have fallen in love with the imagery of the wedding in the New Testament. Ah. Um, my daughter got married this summer and I performed yeah. that. I have a twin brother. He stood at the front and I w walked my daughter down the aisle and he asked who gives her and I answered. And there were people in the church who didn't know I was a twin. It was a lot of oh fun. Oh my goodness. And so I guess that's just heavy on my mind. But for years I thought about how often weddings and wedding day events are in scriptures, particularly the New Testament, particularly in the teachings of Jesus. His first miracle was at a wedding. Right. The, our, we're gonna have the, the marriage feast of the lamb in the book of Revelation at the end time. And so, I don't want to go too far with this. Again, you be careful with the analogies. But when Jesus talks about his coming, and he uses the analogy of the ten virgins waiting with the right lampstands, room, yeah. and he tells the story where, you know, in, from a Jewish custom of a marriage, you would have the beginning. They didn't go to the church and have a stand right. with the white dress and a black suit and a minister in front. Just not their custom like it is in our world today. What would happen was the husband's family would gather a party at their house while the bride's family would gather with a party at her house and they'd be drunk and have fun and all that sort of thing going on at the groom's house. And there, the father has added some rooms on to his house for his new son's family. Typically, you just add it onto the house and add it on because it's not our culture today where we just everybody have a ranch house. And so what happened is at some point, somebody looks at the groom and says, hey, is it time to go get the bride? if you're sober enough. If not, you're stumbling down the path to go find the bride's home. And so she would be there waiting with her, her friends and family for the groom to show up. And that's the story of the, 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 the ladies with the lamps that fall asleep because the party's going way too long back at the, right. groom's, at the groom's house. And so they fall asleep, not prepared. And so when he shows up, he gets the bride, takes her back, off to his house they go. That's a great imagery of this whole end time thing, in my opinion, just chase me off if you think I'm crazy, no, no. beat me with a stick, uh, where it's a picture of the, the bride being prepared for her groom. Jesus says he's the bridegroom. Yeah, Ephesians 5, same imagery. And the groom is going to come back and bring us back, John chapter uh, 14. Yeah. I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. I'm building the house out right. in my father's house, building out the spot for each of us. 
and and That's so we have yeah. we have him now coming back for the bride to take us back where he's going to be. I think it's perfect imagery with a, with a Jewish wedding because of the covenantal love and intimacy that's connected with Christ and the church. I think the Jewish family imagery is all over the Old and New Testament, particularly why we call God Father, Jesus Son, born again, adopted. All those are family imagery, right? So it may be that the Jew, a faithful Jewish home becomes the best analogy for, for faith right interpersonal relationship so I, I would certainly affirm that yeah I think so in the picture of that of that ceremony the bridegroom doesn't come all the way and hang out in the house he comes halfway meets the, the bride and then the party goes back to his place and the wedding lasts a week that's see there <laughs> yeah. there's the idea that we're gonna get I couldn't pay, hardly pay for one day so that's a week right. is tough enough right? that's right <laughs> and so that's that's the picture we have the marriage feast of the lamb being the week don't you as a, a minister and denominational leader don't you miss the days we could sit around a, a table and talk about these things it seems like today you're you're not sure when you say something if the guy's gonna shoot you or something <laughs> you know theologically I wish we had the freedom to express ourselves and learn from one another. Now here's what I think and here's why from the Bible. Because I think it's fair for us to ask anyone who claims to speak for God, can you show me from the Bible where you got that? But then I have the right to pray about it, study it, and walk in the light I have. And what I'm afraid is, Tom, we're not giving others the freedom to walk in the light they have. And what it basically come down to, and I think the greatest arrogance we ever say is, my theology is God's theology. So if you disagree with me, you disagree with God. Right. Now we're in big trouble. We're right. in big trouble. I had a deacon, there was a gracious deacon when I was a new in ministry, pulled me up and there was no issues going on. He said that. He said, I want to say this before there's any issues. He says, you know, sometimes in this church work, whether it's theological, whether it's uh, something about the church, uh, organizational or whatever else, he says, sometimes you're going to be right and I'm going to be wrong. We're still going to be debating. Sometimes I'm going to be right and you're going to be wrong. But you know what? There's going to be a lot of times we're both probably wrong. Wow. So let's just work on this together. And it was gracious. Was healthy, he, yeah. had been the, he had been a deacon in that church for 50 years. I'm a young pastor. He was very gracious and we had a great relationship. He just kind of set the boundary. You know what? We may not always be 100% right all the time. And, uh, and, but we like to think we are, right? And so we dance yeah. with these, but we grow and learn. And, and you know, on that note, just a quick word. I, all of, all of us as pastors have different strengths and weaknesses. And it seems like the church tends to focus after a period of time on the weaknesses. As a previous pastor too. <laughs> yeah, and they usually call somebody exactly opposite. But you know what, the smart thing to do is say, look, this is where you're gifted. We're gonna set you free to minister here. Then we're gonna surround you with gifted people in the church to help you in these other areas that you're not good in. Why don't we do that? Why do we say you're not a good administrator so we don't, we don't get an administrator to help, we just critique? It seems like we like to be in the peanut gallery always throwing barbs instead of joining in this team effort. Because the trick is, I don't believe there's really a distinction between clergy and laity. It, it, they both refer to the entire church. And I think, we've, we've, I think we've damaged ordination by making an elite group instead of another group of servants. So we're in this thing together. We need to love one another if we know Jesus. And I hope we can set the example for some theological dialogue with a kinder, gentler spirit. Ephesians 4. I'm giving some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Well, the for the equipping of, the, of saints. the saints. To do the work of ministry. The church are the saints. And let me... Right. Let me, let me That's right. This was just in my own personal devotional. Uh, talking about that. 
I struggled with this uh, just recently. We know the church at Corinth is a messed up church. Um, I personally think, and, and we'll probably disagree on this, I think what we have in First and Second Corinthians is four of six separate letters that Paul wrote back and forth. I think most people could understand there's at least three letters there. Uh, I don't know what your, what your opinion is, and, it, and it, my opinion really doesn't matter that much. But he wrote so much to them because they were so messed. I think we have, I think we really have second and third Corinthians and fifth and sixth. I think we're missing first and, and fourth, and that's a whole debate there what that means. But he wrote them because this church is messed up. I mean, he and says, he loved them. But he they're loved messed them. up. He, here's a church. I mean, they have one man that's having a relationship with his stepmom. Yeah. And I mean, just one thing after another, after another. After this, he goes through all of Corinthians, talking about all of their problems. But this is how he starts First Corinthians. I have not realized this till three weeks ago. Paul, to the church of God in Corinth, the screwed up, messed up people, he calls them first, to the church of God. Number two, to those sanctified in Christ. This messed up group of people are those he's, he, Paul is calling, he didn't say, to the bozos at Corinth. <laughs> he said, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and number three, to those who are called to be holy. And then he writes this letter. We skip over the introductions because they're unimportant to us in our theology. That's one we don't need to skip over. Right. And he didn't, uh, he didn't pull his apostleship card on them either right there. He said, you know. Yeah, I think, I think they were just really tried to wed Greek philosophy and Christianity like Gnostics in a different way. We get caught in the culture of our day. I think that happened to Calvin and Arminius. We get caught in the culture of our day and forget that through history, every day has different problems and needs. But the content of Revelation can help us face that. So we're off topic of predestined, no, excuse me, on Secret uh, rapture. the rapture and the tribulation and the thousand-year reign and, and, um, and all yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we can really make some charts. We can go at it right now and, and write all the sort of things out. Um, it seems clear to me that the church will live through the rapture, excuse me, the, the tribulation, me whatever too. the tribulation is going to be. Me too. We either are living through it, and some would think the long version of it, or some would think it's a literal seven years that's coming, which I lean toward that. I think we will go through that, and I think we need to be prepared. And whether that's in our lifetime or not, I think we need to be prepared that it, it, it could be, because we don't know. And, and you said earlier that there were different markers of, of the return of Christ through history. There have been. There have been, been anti-Christ archetypes all the way through history. I could have easily. Because been. Satan doesn't know when Jesus is going to right. back. So it's it's simply that God is letting it to be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. And then one day, boom, it's going right. to happen. Right. And so that's always going to be in place. If that's the case, you can always read in your history the end times. Well, it's more clear now than it was once before. Well, but we haven't had certain things happen that make me, it's going to even be more clear. Well, I think when I look at the, the New Testament, there are five things that have to happen first. Um, not all of them, but the gospel will be preached to all nations, the revelation of the man of sin. There's five things that ought to happen first. We can't say, we, one hand we say he can come any moment like a thief in the night, and the same text can say, but these five things have to happen first. Now see, there's the tension of Eastern literature we live in, and Westerners do not do good with that. To just go off, off the rails here, I did have a friend of mine who's a, um, he's an atheist or agnostic at best, and he, we were talking about the, this, um, the hurricane or typhoon that hit Japan that caused the nuclear reaction there, that's still dumping water that's, right. nuclear, that's reactive in the Pacific Ocean. Even today, they can't stop it. They don't know how to stop it. They don't know if they will ever stop it. And it's polluting the Pacific Ocean, and it's now the pollution's being picked up as far 
east and west, uh, east and south as, uh, as, as the east, west coast of the United States. It's now hitting uh, Washington, Oregon, that sort of thing. And we're talking about it. He said, Tom, it's killing the ocean. I said, I know, it's terrible. He said, no, you don't understand. Uh, the estimate it's going to kill a third of the oceans. It's, all, it's going to be devoid of life. I said, well, uh, that's terrible. I, I hear you. I understand that. But, but I know that's going to happen. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. It's going to kill a third, of, literally a third of the oceans. I said, well, that's what the Bible says. <laughs> he goes, what? And I open up Revelation, the third of the oceans will be dead and there'll be no fish in them. Now, I don't know that this nuclear reaction in Japan is what that is. And if we're not careful, anything that happens in, but it could be. It could be that's what God's using. It could be overfishing. It could be something that we can't imagine what's going to happen yet these days. But You know, I think that what we, we miss in Revelation is, you know, those, there's obviously parallel between the trumpet seals and bowls. And it looks like to me what Revelation is, is God defending himself on finally judging humanity. Because every one of those, he tries, but they would not. He tries, but they would not. He tried, and finally he says, fine. Just like the Romans too, fine, have it your way. And this is where he separates human beings to get on with his original purpose, which is fellowship with man. Some will not, will not, will not. And God says, I've tried. I've come again and again. I've sent my prophets. I've sent the weather. I've sent everything to you want. So, so I think Revelation in many ways is the judicial justification of God's judgment that I think we've missed. But it also is in there. Blessed are those who persevere through it all and those who remain faithful to the Letter end. of the seven churches. The end of every one says that, right? Amen. Well, brother, I'm theologically tired. I'm going home. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Oh, I love you, man. What a fun time we've had. Take a whole bunch of other topics. I'm glad day. we settled all this. <laughs>